Welcome to this week's episode of Long Story Short, the global development news show. I'm Kate Midden. A year ago this week, we at DevX launched Aid2, which is really the moniker for the global conversation about sexual violence in the aid and international development sectors. In the years since, the hashtag has spurred hundreds of thousands of tweets, a series of global events, and really served as a rallying point for people to talk about some of the darker corners of our sector. I'm here with Jessica Abrahams. She and I both worked on the launch of Aid2, and Jess has been following developments really closely ever since, as has reporter Sophie Edwards, and really even before we launched this hashtag. Jess, thank you so much for joining me from London. Yeah, thanks. It's great to have this conversation. In case anyone listening hasn't been touched by this conversation yet, I want to start by getting into some of these issues that we're talking about. Um, when the Me Too movement started, you know, there's a lot that came out there about gender dynamics, about power dynamics that really stretch across kind of every organization everywhere. But there are some issues that are particularly unique to international development. Can you get into what some of those issues are? Yeah, so I think there's two kind of distinct story types that have come out during during AT. One concerns sexual harassment in headquarters, so the kind of thing we saw about uh, with Save the Children, for example, sexual harassment of female staff by senior leadership figures uh, in their headquarters in London. Um, and the other side has been kind of in the field, um, sexual harassment and abuse, um, abuse of power, using um, aid to leverage um, sexual uh, behavior from, from uh, aid recipients, that kind of thing. So there's two kind of distinct story types that have been rolled in together. Obviously, there's a lot of um, fundamental issues that underlie both those types of stories, particularly um, gender and power imbalances. But they are different and they probably require slightly different responses and, and some people um, have been quite careful to kind of separate those two. As you mentioned, this is something that's obviously affected a huge amount of industries. It's not just the aid sector. Um, so it obviously all spiraled out of the Me Too movement, which was very broad. And then we've seen scandals um, hit Hollywood, politics, journalism, um, academia. Um, so clearly there are kind of uh, big issues to do with inequality that um, aren't specific to the aid sector. But I think there are a few things that are specific to the aid sector that need uh, addressing or need to be mean that these things need to be approached in a particular way so the first um the first issue i would say is the international nature of aid which makes it a bit more difficult to track these things to hold perpetrators to account as we saw in the aftermath of the oxfam uh, haiti scandal for example i want to dig into the oxfam stuff in a minute but this you know this international structure that you're talking about you know the thing that we hear a lot about that you've done a lot of reporting on is this idea that perpetrators often get floated around this international system and it really is kind of undermined by a lack of accountability how had like how have you seen that play out in practice in the reporting that you've done yeah so i think there's two probably two key issues that people talk about here the first is um a lack of international standards so um there's some countries would have for example within the european union you might have kind of uniform standards on reporting certain things international 
internationally that doesn't really exist uh, criminal record checks are not going to be comparable between different countries that kind of thing um so it makes it a bit easier perhaps for people to kind of slip through the gaps they commit an offense in one country and it's easy for them to kind of go somewhere else and just that falls off the radar um the other thing is legal barriers to sharing references between organizations which seems like such a simple thing um, but it feels like talking to people this has been such a big problem um, because of potential libel risks and so on, especially if um, there's not been any sort of legal conviction. Um, Organisations are very wary about sharing bad references or sharing information about this kind of thing with other potential employers. Um, and that has also played a key role in allowing offenders to move around the system. You know, when we're talking about what this looks like in practice, to give it some context, it might be, you know, a country director who's working for one NGO in Nairobi all of a sudden popping up in Accra or in another country in the same job at the same level or even getting promoted. And it's because when HR called the first company, they didn't say, we push this person out or let them go because there was a sexual harassment or a violence. Exactly. Or even within that, um, there's no kind of rigid structure to deal with references. So a lot of uh, organisations would, would just take um, reference nominations from, from the job candidate. So you could nominate um, your former colleague or your friend or anyone to give you a reference. It doesn't necessarily have to be a line manager or HR. Um, so there's a lot of ways to kind of work your way around the system, particularly in the aid sector um, when they're often, often having to hire people at very short notice um, in the wake of a humanitarian emergency, for example, perhaps you have 48 hours to find someone. Um, it doesn't give you a lot of time to really do the full reference checks that you might do in another sector. That, that is the other thing that's very unique about this line of work is when you're talking about something like a rapid onset natural disaster or if you're working in a humanitarian setting where a conflict is heating up, you really do need to get people in the door right away, and that just does not lend itself to the kind of deep background checks, especially if you have someone coming from a reputable organization. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing to mention there is that um, people are often working on short-term contracts. Um, they work where they're needed at the time. Um, and the problem with that, firstly, is um, that allows somebody to do six months somewhere and then you know, move off somewhere else for another six months, and that doesn't look strange, whereas in some sectors that might look strange if you were sort of job hopping between contracts all the time. Uh, the other thing is it puts um, victims or people who might want to report abuse in quite a vulnerable situation. Um, if you're working short contract to short term contract, you, you don't have the safety of a kind of long term um, staff position necessarily to protect you if you do you go forward. Right, so I mean, there there is the piece about um, making it harder to get hired, you know, to get your contract renewed if you are bringing these allegations forward, and then a lot of organizations just not having reporting mechanisms at all. Exactly. So something that is illustrative of um, this issue of perpetrators getting floated around the humanitarian system is what happened, uh, was what came out, I should say, this past year with Oxfam. Um, let me first say that, you know, Oxfam is Oxfam has drawn so much heat this past year, but I actually saw someone comment on Twitter today saying something really salient, is that just because we're talking about Oxfam is a big issue here, does not mean that this only happens at Oxfam. It's just that this is illustrative of a wider issue. 
but can you give us kind of the background of what happened there and then where and how um, you know, allegations over the past year about Oxfam have kind of spiraled into policy decisions. Yeah, I mean, Oxfam has taken a lot of the heat and it's probably simply because it was the first organization um, to really have headlines splashed about it across the newspapers. Um, and that sort of detracted attention from everything else. So the first story hit actually back in October 2017. Um, the Times newspaper in London published a story about the rising number of reports of sexual harassment within Oxfam. I think their internal figures had something like tripled over the course of two years. Um, but actually, Oxfam's response to that, which was supported by a lot of the people we spoke to within the aid sector at the time, was that that didn't necessarily indicate rising numbers of incidents. It just meant that they had taken steps to strengthen their reporting mechanisms that made it easier for people to come forward. Uh, and then, of course, the number the number of reports had had risen. Um, so I think there has been some sense that actually Oxfam was kind of seen as leading the way on a lot of these issues, um, and they've been a little bit ambushed by the media as a result. So what was the what was the tipping point for Oxfam to put in place these new reporting mechanisms? Was this something that just came from? you know, the, the leadership like under Winnie Bianyima, her wanting to have kind of these stronger processes in place, or was there something else that kind of tipped the scale to make it, um, to put them in a position where they could not do that? I think it was a combination of the Haiti scandal, which happened back in 2011, the internal report was 2012. So in the years since then, they've really, really taken a lot of steps to try and um, strengthen their internal mechanisms. Can you give us and a also, quick a quick refresh on the Haiti scandal? Sure. So um, basically, it was a, a leaked internal report uh, that Oxfam had put together in 2012, um, highlighting quite widespread safeguarding breaches within their Haiti country office in the aftermath of the earthquake there. Um, there were various safeguarding breaches included in this, bullying and so on, um, but the one that really um, got a lot of media attention in, in the kind of um, environment of Me Too and so on uh, was the use of sex workers, local paying local women for sex uh, in the aftermath of this big humanitarian emergency, um, which although it didn't actually go against Oxfam's own staff policy at the time, it did go against UN guidelines and also went against uh, Haitian law. Um, and there was this added issue that there was some um, some reports that some of these women could have been underage, although. Um, Oxfam found it, it wasn't able to find evidence for or against that, uh, so we still don't know that. But that that was the story, and um, several men were either sacked or were allowed to resign from their positions um, as a result of this. Some of these details had actually been made public at the time, but um, the full scale um, of the problems was really only revealed in February this year when the Times got hold of the report. And if I'm remembering correctly, the other piece of this too is that you know, the people who were involved in the scandal did, or at least most of them, ended up getting jobs at other NGOs. Yes, yeah, several of them were found. I think there were seven or eight men involved, and at least three or four of them were found to, to be working um, at other NGOs at the time that all of this came out. So as this had kind of come to the fore and the time story that you're talking about came out, um, there's been a lot of movement on DFID's side about trying to find 
a solution to this very complicated and country-specific, context-specific problem. Um, how has that resulted? I mean, we've heard of, about things like um, Defense Secretary Penny Morgent uh, floating a global aid or a global sex offender registry for aid. You know, what does that look like? Is that a solution? So DFID has been very vocal about this. They've really tried to position themselves as an agency that's leading the way on this. Um, Penny Morden has made a lot of really clear statements about it. Um, Oxfam and Save the Children have both been suspended from bidding on new DFID contracts pending uh, investigation by the UK charity regulator. And Penny Morden has so far brought together two safeguarding summits, a smaller one um, before the summer and a larger one in October. Um, to try and bring the aid sector together and see if we can find solutions to this. So the, the kind of flagship project that was announced at the International Safeguarding Summit in October was a global register of aid workers, which um, is going to be trialled um, at hubs in Africa and Asia. Um, we've heard from quite a lot of aid insiders that there are kind of big obstacles to making this work in practice. Some of the issues we've already discussed to do with legal issues um, and practical issues in making records between countries comparable, that kind of thing. Um, but it's something that's being explored, and although it's not going to be the full solution, it might go some way to at least preventing people from hopping around the system. I'm curious if part of the issue with floating perpetrators around the international system is, if, if the issue is like the laws of different countries, then how would a registry assuage that? So exactly part of this problem is that such a register would probably only be able to record um, criminal offences. Um, so if somebody's been investigated by the authorities in a particular country or um, they've been found guilty of, of something, um, that would be much easier to record. Um, but of course, as you say, laws are different in different countries. Um, for example, the use of sex workers it's illegal in Haiti, but it isn't illegal in a lot of places. Um, and moreover, in a, in a lot of these contexts, it's not just, it's very difficult to um, hold people to account underneath the authorities, either because, of, you know, this is an emergency context. Um, the authorities might not have con control of a particular area. Um, in some situations, it might be quite dangerous um, to try and pursue legal avenues. So that, that is one thing that, you know, does mean that, that such a register would be very limited. Yeah, I think it's important to really dig into the idea that in order for something to be recorded, it might need to be a criminal offense. Um, you know, a, a big, big issue here that we talked about, we touched on briefly in the beginning of this episode, is the power differential between local and national staff and the power issues that are involved in even reporting sex crimes when, or harassment when they happen. Um, you know, Angela Bruce Rayburn is the executive director of the Global Health Advocacy Incubator. She was actually in, you know, working in Haiti when everything that we were just talking about unfolded and she's been very vocal about um, the pitfalls of safeguarding and been, you know, a big critic of it because, you know, there, there are many things that kind of bubble up in international development that will invest time and thought and you know, in resources into, but they don't always have the outcomes that we expect. Um, I do 
for anyone who has not read her op-ed in DevX from a couple of months ago, um, it will be in the notes of this podcast, but I do want to just read a couple excerpts from it and then you know, get your reaction, Jessica, in terms of how it squares with the reporting that you've done. Sure. So one thing she says is many organizations imagine that they can control insidious predatory behavior of some aid workers through the creation of new structures, panels, commissions, and reporting mechanisms like clockwork somewhere in headquarters of a humanitarian aid organization, the safeguarding industry was hatched and experts magically appeared and promises of change were made. And she goes on to say, safeguarding cannot exist without the unequivocal acceptance and commitment to addressing the longstanding power differential between local and national staff and the expatriates who more often than not are the head of the office or country director. The imbalance drives day-to-day working, drives the day-to-day working environment not only in local and national offices, but in the larger context of the country as well. And then finally, at the end of the day, safeguarding should not be about brand risk or the protection of donors. It should be a moral responsibility for international organizations operating in some of the most vulnerable places in the world. All safeguarding is local and should begin in local and national country offices. Um, You know, this is a bit juxtaposed to what we're talking about when we're Angela is talking about this needs to be locally driven because we're talking about um, people who are working locally and power differentials. But at the same time, we are having this conversation about a global registry that is you know, spearheaded by a major donor, DFID. What is your reaction to that? And is there a way for these, this juxtaposition to kind of become either aligned or integrated in some way? that moves a lot of what we've heard and I think the problematic power differential is not just between uh, local and international staff but also of course between staff and beneficiaries Um, you know really those are the ones that the beneficiaries are the ones who are most vulnerable and who um, need to be empowered to be able to come forward but there's very few although there are internal um, mechanisms often for people to report so Oxfam for example has a whistleblower hotline um, there's very few mechanisms for beneficiaries to come forward and report if they need to and there might be language barriers and so on um, I think one of the issues we've touched on briefly as well about the um, short-term contracts and um, that's something that affects local tends to affect local staff more than international staff so it might be hired just on a three-month contract they don't know where the next contract is coming from it might be harder for them to work abroad as well so it's harder for them to just kind of bounce between offices if they're between organizations if they need to um, but I think what we've heard from a lot of people is that um, we're going to need a combination of these things you know that there are kind of short-term practical things that can be done, um, like a register, like improving your reporting mechanisms, hotlines, and so on. But at the end of the day, that doesn't really get to the fundamental issue of the power imbalance, and that's really a long-term cultural change, um, which needs to be addressed too, and that's, of course, a more challenging aspect in a way. As we continue doing this reporting, um, you know, under the umbrella of aid to what is the biggest question that you have looking ahead to the end of the year into 2019? I think the big question for a lot of people is how much change are we really going to see here? You know, this year has been so tumultuous for the aid sector in a way. There's been so many stories. It's been in 
the headlines a lot more than it is used to. Um, we've had a huge number of um, projects being announced. Uh, the Global Register is just one of them. I think you know there were five or, or six projects announced at the International Safeguarding Summit. Um, we've had sort of industry-wide things like Bond and ACFID, the British and Australian um, NGO networks have kind of announced um, changes, commitments from their hundreds and hundreds of NGO members. Um, internally within organisations, there's been a lot of different reforms. We've got organisations establishing safeguarding units, perhaps for the first time. So there's been all this activity, and I think the big question going forward is how much does that really change things? Um, how have we really got it right? What has aid to, in a long-term sense, really meant for the aid sector? And I do wonder, you know, it's how much does it matter and how are we measuring how much this matters? Sure. I mean, of course, there's the, the big question as part of that, I suppose, is um, does this all die down once it's out of the headlines? Uh, is the reason for all of this activity that organizations are kind of nervous to be the next one in the headlines? Or is it really that kind of big moral thing of like, this is the aid sector's responsibility, um, which is much harder to measure? But a lot of people would say is what needs to be driving all of this. You know, going back to um, a year ago when we were launching Aid2, you know, we did it in December. We started talking about it in October. And part of the reason that it took some time was because we wanted to make sure that we were really thoughtful in the way that we have launched this campaign and making sure that if people were ready to give tips, share their stories, you know, point out injustice and point out solutions and things that are working, that they would have a place to come. Um, we knew, you know, these issues that we're talking about are not new. They have been no secret, but it does feel like it's in the past year where there's really been a place to talk about them. And the media plays a big role in that conversation. It is something along a spectrum of, you know, kind of getting to change. So I would just make a plea for anyone who's listening to this episode who has something to say about this, who has um, a tip for us, has a story for us, wants to share their perspective, an op-ed, um, anything like that, to just go ahead and reach out because once it falls out of the headlines doesn't mean that injustice is not happening. Yeah, and DevX has been covering this for um, more than two years at least. Um, you know, as you say, it's not a new issue and it's something we'll continue paying attention to. So the more people we can hear from, the better. All right. Thank you so much, Jess. Thanks.